to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Passions drive us, passions define us, passions connect us. Yet passions are changing and with the explosion of digital, the democratisation of media and a plethora of publishing tools available, expression can come in any form and inspiration can come from anywhere. The team at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment have identified this trend as hyper passions and have launched an agency, MNC Saatchi Fabric, where their goal is to weave brands through culture. While Australia is the first market to introduce the new MNC Saatchi fabric, there are plans for offices in London, New York, Johannesburg and Berlin to follow in the coming months. And that is all because research from MNC Saatchi Intelligence identified that interest areas that were traditionally considered hobbies, including fashion, food, beauty, health and well-being, have exploded into passion areas, with lifestyle purchases in these categories making up one in every two online transactions in Australia last year, and news stories across the category growing by up to 80% in the last three years. It sounds an obvious and simple enough opportunity for brands, but it also sounds fraught with danger. How do big brands with big budgets weave themselves through the hyper passions and the subcultures of the world, which have long been guarded by the passionate member themselves? These hyper passions are highly nuanced, a point that should not be lost on brands, agencies, and indeed rights holders. How would and how will those with hyper passions respond to corporate involvement? I suppose that remains to be seen, but what is undeniable is the opportunity in front of brands to connect with their target markets through their hyper passions and while it can be lucrative i think all involved are looking to help enable and enhance hyper passions as opposed to simply hijacking them for corporate outcomes it's an intriguing scenario to say the least hi i'm daniel oyston host of inside sponsorship and you're listening to episode 91 brought to you by core software thanks for joining us for this episode i hope you're well and that while this is our last episode for 2020 wherever you are in the world you're gearing up for a huge 2021 shout out time my favorite part because i get to mention people's names and make them feel just a little bit special and this time around i have three shout outs and they all pretty much said the same thing that they love the show and to keep the episodes coming so thanks to dan morgan co-founder and general manager of second sunday Johnny Duggan, energy broker at Utilitrack, who is also an entrepreneur and investor, and also Christina Rooney, who is testing the market in helping not-for-profits after having spent almost five years as Deloitte Australia's Head of Sponsorship and Partnerships in Australia. Thanks for getting in touch, legends. It's great to hear from you. As I said earlier, MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment have launched a new lifestyle marketing division, MNC Saatchi Fabric, responding to increased demand from brands who are looking to connect with audiences in the emerging hyper-passions category. In the lifestyle category, we're seeing a proliferation of fragmented and heightened and, and often quite niche interests, particularly in areas of food, style and well-being. And this is changing the way consumers discover, engage with and express what they love. In fact, Steve Martin, global CEO of MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment, said, quote, a lot can be learnt from sport and entertainment marketing on how to build fandom and drive loyalty. There are traditional, sophisticated ecosystems centred primarily around long-term sponsorship deals and broadcast rights, as well as athletes, celebrities and major events that offer created, well-established ways for brands to activate. End quote. 
As such, joining me on this episode to talk hyperpassions is Luke Haynes, Group Account Director at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment in Australia. But before we hear from Luke, Daniel Collier-Hill, Cause Commercial Director, APAC, joins us to discuss his latest blog titled, What Type of Report Will Have the Most Impact on Sponsorship Strategy in 2021? Here's Daniel. Daniel Collier-Hill, welcome back to the show for the last time in 2020. And as we look to next year, 2021, you put a little cheeky post up on LinkedIn recently, which posed the question to people, what type of report will have the most impact on sponsorship strategy in 2021? How'd you get on with that little project? Look, every strategist has got a go-to way of evaluating the success of a deal, both short-term and long-term. So I wanted to unpack this a little. And look, admittedly, in and amongst various conversations with some of our industry's best, I ran that quick uh, quick cheeky poll on LinkedIn, which was, you know, what, what type of report will have the most impact on sponsorship strategy in 2021? Yeah, look, this is totally subjective (laughs) and the sample size wasn't huge. So don't take this with a grain of salt, but, you know, there's there's four options that we really want to look at. So live deal valuation, asset or benefit delivery, value generated by objective and then digital engagement. So each are extremely valuable to both rights holders and brands in their own right. One more so than others, according to results, with 66% of people saying that value generated by objective would have the most impact on sponsorship strategy. It's interesting. So while that was the winner, value generated by objective was the clear winner, the other options, they definitely can still provide people with great impact on their sponsorship strategy. So I thought it was worth having a chat, getting you on and unpacking them and for people to understand and consider how they may use those various reports in their unique situation. So let's start with the first option you presented to people and that was live deal valuation. This is a tough one, right? And and perhaps let's pivot the narrative and, and oversimplify this. Perhaps we call it deal scoring to, to break it down. So when considering objectives, deal scoring is a great way to visualize the real-time performance of your deals because we're able to see all of these deals on a scatter plot graph sorted by a score out of 100 on one axis and then your investment or revenue on another. So here's a, a quick 30 seconds for listeners. Deal scores on the y-axis should be calculated by weighting uh, an achievement of at least two objectives. And I think anything less, it starts to get a bit tricky. And then ideally, we want to have two to three key results that we can track to determine whether or not an objective has been met. As an example, an objective might be to increase online signups. If we reverse engineer this, like every strategist loves to do, we need to first increase online engagement with a view to driving people to a specific page on the website that acts as an online sign-up form. So at a basic level, our key results could be a percentage increase of online engagement across the website, a percentage increase of click-throughs to to the sign-up page, uh, and then even another percentage increase of people completing the online sign-up form. And then on the x-axis, with all that considered, this just then becomes a range of our lowest spend to our highest spend. Find me anyone who doesn't value this type of report. <laughs> I think uh, I'll eat my hat is the phrase. <laughs> That's true. And so the next option you gave people, and it was the winner, and that was spend and value generated by objective. What are your thoughts on that and why it was the one that was chosen as probably having the most impact on sponsorship strategy in 2021? Look, a big sin in survey data. I've tweaked the question a little bit, I know, but stay with me. 
it's common to find objectives being applied or tagged at a deal level. Uh, some strategists and sponsorship professionals will also do this at an asset level as well. By doing this, we're then able to filter down to both spend and the value attributed to the objective that was applied. From a spend perspective, by tracking our hard costs per asset, we're able to then aggregate this to a total amount. We're also able to build a comprehensive analysis around how we link assets to objectives, not just those few archer overing ones that that sound good. Then there's value. And and you know, look if, if listeners pause momentarily and said something out loud about, you know, and how do we find the value? <laughs> We're on the same page. Uh, how we measure the value of assets then subsequently becomes the hero or key component in this dashboard. Yep, some good points there. Next option was asset of benefit delivery. And like I said at the start, all of the options have impact. So what are your thoughts on this option as a report? Look, for core clients, this is, you know, bread and butter or a bread and butter report, I should say. And to a certain degree, I feel this needs a little bit more love than the poll results gave it. You know, it's it's the non-sexy stuff, but it, it's still really important. Being able to easily see the assets that have and haven't been used to date can be a really effective tool in helping shape strategy and execution. On face value, it's a fairly simple report, but if I can put my strategy hat on for a second, it helps me understand the money I've left on the table or, you know, perhaps wasted. Uh, it, it, it helps me talk to other internal teams about what can be used in a you know a new product launch campaign or to instill confidence that we're delivering assets that can help achieve specific objectives. It's not the most glamorous or complex report, as we said, but I can guarantee you that asset delivery is still as important as ever on both sides. Oh, I'd agree with you. I was a bit surprised that that one didn't get a little bit more love as well as the next one I thought would have got a little bit more love because finally you offered digital engagement as an option. As I said, I was surprised that this didn't get more attention considering the moves that many brands and rights holders have made in the digital space this year during a pandemic and that engagement, regardless of whether that's in the digital space or not, is often seen as a big objective, a big goal of sponsorship. So what have you made of this one, digital engagement? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Like the, the mass shift to digital and then take up of you know direct con- direct to consumer platforms uh, across both sides of the deal is really where everything is going in terms of sponsorship activation next year. Um, admittedly, digital is not my personal foray. However, based on conversations with clients and, and, and others in the industry, understanding how digital and social media can play a role in achieving objectives, look, I can see why it's important. But what level of impact does it have is is the real question. I think if we can stay on the path of the, the online signups forms that we were talking about earlier, being able to break down a social post tracker or a, a branded content summary report can be really effective in, in determining whether the messaging we're using is working or not and perhaps the timing and the, the platform we're using. Uh, I think the methods that we can reverse engineer because of this report uh, uh, still really important. We spoke about it earlier and there's look a, a little bit of a drum roll there, but in, in terms of the winner out of all of these, I can't disagree with the poll. It wins value generated by objective. Um, we need to move on from the, the the return on objective versus return on investment debates. It, it, it's, it's the old adage. We need to move on. Um, going into 2021, objectives need to lead sponsorship strategy in the reports or dashboards that can help us quickly understand performance uh, are really going to have a huge impact on this. 
A very interesting blog, Dan. Thanks for that. And, and it's been a pleasure catching up with you each month in 2020 and unpacking your latest blog. I've really enjoyed the chats and the insights that you've brought to the show. And I know that the listeners have appreciated it as well. So listeners, as always, if you want to read Dan's blog in slow time, just head to coresoftware.com. And Dan, I hope you and the family have a great break. And uh, I, I really do look forward to working with you more and, and chatting about your blogs in 2021. Thanks very much, mate. Uh, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year to, to you and all the listeners. Uh, bring on 2021. Research from MNC Saatchi Intelligence identified that interest areas that were traditionally considered hobbies, including fashion, food, beauty, health, and well-being, have exploded into passion areas, with lifestyle purchases in these categories making up one in every two online transactions in Australia last year, and news stories across the category growing by up to 80% in the last three years. In the lifestyle category, we're seeing a proliferation of fragmented, heightened, and often quite niche interests, particularly in areas of food, style, and well-being. And this is changing the way that consumers discover, engage with, and express what they love. The team at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment have identified this trend as hyper passions and have launched an agency, MNC Saatchi Fabric, where their goal is to weave brands through culture. To talk us through hyper passions is Luke. Haynes, Group Account Director at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment Australia. Here's Luke. Luke, welcome to the show. We always start off with an icebreaker question, just to get the ball rolling and for the listeners to get to know you a little. In my research, I see that you have been involved with campaigns for Optus, with the Com Games and the Olympics with the AOC. Let's say the Australian Olympic Committee rings you one afternoon. They say, Luke, your country needs you. We're down on athletes. We need you in the Australian Olympic team for this year's Olympics. You can pick any sport you like. Luke, what are you picking? What's your choice and why? I would normally say get me in the Olympic football team and I might just about scrape in as one of the overage players, but uh, I might be a bit of an injury out for the upcoming, upcoming Olympics after doing my um, ankle ligaments that week playing five side. but I think if I had to pick one, that's probably where I'm likely to embarrass myself the least, shall we say. <laughs> Luke, you and the broader MNC Saatchi team are beginning to really champion hyper passions into your client work and the broader sponsorship industry. For the listeners, can you explain what you mean by hyper passions and also what role that they can play in overall brand strategy? I'm not sure whether it's a, a term that we've coined ourselves. Look, I'll happily take the credit for it. But it's an idea that we came up with as we started to look at the, the cultural landscape in the slightly blunt way that a lot of um, brands and agencies and the industry more generally was looking at things. And, you know, traditionally it used to be broken down into those very, very broad uh, verticals of, you know, sport, music, film, food and dining, say. And that was just feeling like it was increasingly sort of not reflective of, of how people behave um, in this day and age. And actually... People are starting to define their lives with passion points. So the firstly, probably a lot more niche. Um, I think that's that's one part of the idea about hyper passions. But also, it's got a lot to do with how people then use those more niche passions as a way of really reflecting their self identity. So it becomes a real key part of how you actually put yourself out there and how you kind of put your your personal brand out into the the social media ether and and that kind of thing. So it's very much about sort of niche passions, but also how you then express that as part of your own sense of self-identity. So really what we're saying here is that those general demographics that we've often relied on 
for so long aren't going to cut it moving forward and that maybe we really needed to be smarter about who we're trying to engage with and how. As such, let's unpack that because it sounds as if there's two key data points that help shape these hyper passions, the first being the psychographics and the second being behavioral analytics. Let's start with psychographics, the intangible stuff, this being things like interests, opinions, habits, etc. How do you think we even begin to unpack that type of data from consumers and where do you draw the line on when you think you've got enough data there? It's not uh, an exact science at the moment. I don't think I've got a silver bullet tool that perfectly answers that for us at the moment. And that's probably something we'll look at putting together in the foreseeable future because we'd, we'd really love to have a tool that we can take to market that perfectly kind of zeroes in on these more niche passions. At the moment, we're having to do a bit of a combination of things. So we work quite closely with um, Bohemia, who is now um, an Sachi group, and we have access to Kinyasa data and a lot of other stuff through those guys. And that tends to give you the more, the kind of bigger passion points, these more traditional, you know, your, your big sports and your um, you know, music and dining and social activities and that kind of thing. But then what we're starting to do more and more is pair that with social listening. So our PR team and our social team will, will use their tools to look at what conversations are happening in social media. And when we start pulling all of these various different data points together, we then have to kind of, you know, use our own smarts, I guess, to really try and identify where there's potentially a, an untapped part of culture that's worth taking a closer look at for a client. So as I say, not really a, um, a silver bullet tool at the moment, but that's certainly something we're looking at developing some sort of proprietary thing within the next year or so. As I said earlier, there is also behavioural analytics, which more so looks at how buyers act. And you mentioned just then some social tools that you and the team use to listen to those conversations happening out on social media and probably other platforms as well. The insights we get from internet-based platforms, it's amazing the amount of data that we can get but it can be also pretty scary because there's a lot of things there it's a lot of data points there's a lot of volume in terms of the amount of data so it can be hard to sort of sift through it and see what we do with it what role do you see that type of data playing in actually helping you and brands discover hyper passions it's definitely a key part i don't think it's something that we would rely on single-handedly. I mean, I think the figures of, um, that we're starting to see around behaviours of uh, how people are shopping and the massive uptick in purchasing through Instagram and um, direct through social channels, I think is something that's quite interesting because that's obviously a very data-rich environment so you can learn quite a lot about who those customers are and, and look at that in real time and then hopefully connect that back to a, a profile that we might be actively going after. But look, I would never really use that in isolation. I think we'd look at that in terms of one part of the puzzle, but we definitely want to be pairing that with, you know, even just old school sort of observational stuff. You know, what what are we seeing in the world? What are we seeing journalists writing about? Getting out there, looking at, you know, the entertainment industry, who's going to what music gigs, what festivals are happening, how's the film industry going? We we want to pair that data with a bit of... um, just a, a bit of art, really, and a bit of observation, a bit of strategy, just to try and identify those spots. But it, yeah, I don't think it's something we lean on too heavily. Despite that, it all coming together, it all sounds very exciting, but also challenging. You spoke then about how you still have to use your smarts to look at the data and unpack it and figure out what you're going to do with it. So ultimately, there is 
opportunities there for brands. Hopefully, this is something that you can comment on around your current work, but appreciate it if you, you can't. But how does a brand get to a point where they recognize the need to target hyper passions instead of other ways to define an audience, maybe like they've done more traditionally with just plain, pure demographics? I'm sure we'll get to this in a bit, but we'd never recommend these kind of approaches. You go all in on hyper passions at the expense of all of your more traditional kind of sponsorship channels. We see this very much as the kind of cherry on top type stuff that gets you access to one niche audience who you can go quite deep with. But I think, I mean, to give you a real world example, I've got a, a background in cycling. I spent a number of years working with Sky Sports and British Cycling, and you know that, that was a really successful strategy for Sky for a long time, and it did amazing things for their brand. If we were looking at that strategy with this new lens of hyper passions, that's where I'd start to be talking to that particular client about maybe thinking about getting involved in Strava or getting involved in Zwift or some of these more smaller communities that are still within that world of cycling. But it's, um, you know, it, we, we saw some interesting data through COVID around a massive spike in interest in both of those two platforms because obviously people had all this time in their hands, exercise became really important given that we were stuck in our own home. So they're the kind of things that are happening really dynamically. It's happening incredibly sort of reactively and usually at quite short notice these spikes are occurring, things happening at an incredible speed. So that's where we would look at probably advise a client to maybe have a look at that particular area as a bolt on to an existing strategy that just helps you go deep on a particular subset within that audience and really help the brand prove that they properly care about that passion point. You know, I think it's a way of showing that you really get it, that you really share that passion and that you really understand what makes those communities tick. So, Luke, you spoke there about how our behaviours changed during COVID and, and we saw an uptick in things like platforms like uh, Swift and, and things like that. We see passions pick up, particularly around things like the Olympics or maybe the Australian Open. We see a few more kids down uh, playing tennis or cricket or maybe doing athletics when the Olympics are on and, and things like that. You then spoke about brands really showing that they get a space. Is there an opportunity or is it dangerous for brands to potentially just dip into hyper passion? So if there's a, a real uptick in interest in cycling because we're stuck inside, people are cycling indoors, maybe the one of the tours is on, potentially the Tour de France, to just dip into a hyper passion and dip out or is that dangerous and really shows that you don't get it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend that. I think if you're going to go, go with that sort of strategy, you need to you need to have your house in order. You need to properly understand the space because I think a brand turning up in that more niche part of culture and being found out if they say something that isn't quite using the right language or isn't quite showing they really understand what makes that community tick, I think that could really backfire. Um, so I would only ever kind of push this strategy, I think, if it was something that felt really complementary to what they're already doing. But that also we knew that we had credibility in the space and we had, you know, we had a valid contribution to the conversation that could be made and, and could turn up in that part of culture in a way that didn't feel disingenuous. So I would really make sure you get it right, I think, if you get if you're gonna go down that path, yeah. 
It all sounds really exciting. Lots of opportunities there, but some hard work to go through to collect the data and unpack it and, and find those opportunities. So following on from all of that, as brand marketers, I think the underlying message there is that we know that we can no longer just stick people or audiences into a general bucket and hope to do well. So Luke, how do we take it to the next level and start to uncover the real passions and interests in that finer detail that we're going to need to be successful on this front? goes back to the that combination of tools um, and it's that pairing of, of art and science, really. So, you know, in terms of the science, you know, there are good tools out there. We do use, you know, some data. We do use, you know, Roy Morgan. We do social listening pretty regularly to kind of keep a pulse check on those conversations how they're playing out online. But then I think it, it, right now we're pairing that with our own observations, our own, um, you know, the people that we have walking the beat on the, in, in the cultural world looking at what's happening and where and where the audiences are. So it's a, you know, it's an exciting space because it's evolving and it's, you know, I don't think that the industry has, you know, perfected a, a way of identifying these audiences yet and that's something that we'd like to try and help to solve in the future. But at the moment, I think we've, we're having to use our experience, our intuition, some old school common sense and pair that with the, the best data that we have at our disposal. To the point that we've spoken about a couple of times around it being less about general segments and more about that deeper layer and level of understanding, how do we start bringing this into sponsorship strategy and see it come to life, either whether it's from a rights holder maybe presenting hyper passions to brands around the markets that they're already engaged with and those opportunities that might be there, or even brands having a good understanding of hyper passions and then going out and trying to find rights holders whose fans have those same hyper passions? It presents an interesting challenge for rights holders because I don't, not to do them a disservice, but I don't know that they've necessarily always had control over the full ecosystem of that sport. And I think it's not always been commercialised in a way that we would maybe like it to be commercialised in order to kind of take that to a potential sponsor. Um, I mean, to give you an example, I mean, I think about the world of basketball just because it's top of mind. And for the record, I show a huge amount of respect for the guys at the NBL and Basketball Australia. This is just using them as an example. But that's a that's a sporting ecosystem which is incredibly diverse. You know, you've got um, the traditional formats of the game. You've got a women's game, which is incredibly strong. They've got an incredibly strong Paralympic team. You've then got three-by-three variants of the game. You've got street basketball. You've got, you know, people just playing ad hoc in an alleyway. You've got kids shooting hoops that are in the backyard or whatever. And then even in terms of the audience that you're addressing there, it's incredibly diverse. You know, it's it's nationwide. You've got really strong hooks into migrant communities, cultural subsets. And I'm just, uh, to give them credit, I think they've actually got a really, really good product that um, helps dial up the opportunities within those areas. But there are other sports I look at where, you know, you've got an equally diverse ecosystem and either, you know, for government's reasons, it's not within their control to actually commercialise certain aspects of the game because they don't have ownership of it or they haven't just quite worked out strategically how to package that up and sell it to a sponsor. So I think it's an interesting challenge for rights holders. I think they... There, there are already signs, I think, that they're starting to see the, the opportunities here. And I think the more we have conversations like this, hopefully that starts to open up their eyes to the possibilities as well. But it's not something I think is really perfectly in place at the moment. I think it's a massive opportunity for them to capitalise on. If it is a big opportunity, and I'm guessing they're not the only example of 
that sort of situation. What type of activities or exercises can both brands and rights holders start undertaking to, to try and gather the type of data that becomes important to help uncover hyper passions? And I'm particularly interested if you've seen any good examples of this happening. In terms of how you uncover it, I think it's, um, it's about spending the time understanding the community, um, understanding the different types of people that are involved in that particular passion point, you know, ideally speaking to them, you know, running focus groups, getting involved yourself, you know, so that from both an agency and the client side, I think you want that, that first-hand experience and actually speaking to people that are within that, that part of culture and understanding what makes them tick. But there's no substitute that, for that really. I think I'm still a fan of running focus groups and, you know, putting a human face to, to data. I think that's incredibly helpful. So have you seen a brand that's done a, whether you guys have worked with them or not, or potentially a rights holder who've really identified a good hyper passion and made a real go of it? I'm not saying a lot of it. It's a, you know, it's a proposition that we've sort of taken to market in the last, well, pretty much in the last six weeks since we launched M&C Saatchi Fabric. And that's something that we're, that we're trying to put in front of brands and encourage them to think about more and more. I think when I look outside of our own world, Look, you know, in the music space, I think you see brands doing interesting things going after a particular part of the of the music scene. In, in the world of sport, no, I'm, I'm not seeing any sort of best-in-class sort of case studies at the moment. I think that's exactly why it's a, uh, it's a strategy that we're really trying to pursue and encourage brands to take a look at because we think there's opportunity there. But the way of going about it, I think, really needs to be as a uh, as a complement to an existing strategy. So, you know, going back to that example I had before of the work that I did with Sky Sports and British Cycling, if we were doing that now, you know, that's just a few years ago now, but if we were doing that now, I would certainly be speaking to them about looking at those kind of more niche parts of the cycling community and looking at how we can go into those spaces just to, to demonstrate to your more hardcore fans that, we get the sport, we love it, we share the passion, and we can add value. And I think that creates a bit of a halo effect for the for the broader strategy that um, that is really beneficial to that brand. Potentially regressing a little bit here with this next question, Luke, but how do you feel our industry, the sponsorship industry, has responded to audience demographics? Is it something that you see both rights holders and brands as having used well in sponsorship or is there still room for more improvement? And if there's room for improvement, how can they and where can they improve? I'm not a huge fan of the way um, audiences are segmented at the moment. I think it's it's a really, really blunt tool at the moment. What I see coming across my desk when I get when I get briefs from agencies or from clients, sorry, or whether I'm speaking to media agencies about how they're segmenting an audience, I I feel like we're still far too broad, um, and I think that is, you know, it's borderline disrespectful to the people that we're talking about when we're bucketing people together that actually have very little in common and have very few of the same interests and passions, but because they happen to live in a certain part of the country and earn the same amount of money and are of a similar age, we just lump them all in together. And I think that's a really, really blunt way of trying to solve an audience problem. Well, let's change tack a little and bring it into the practical on that point. Let's say you're helping a client, a brand, reshape 
their sponsorship strategy. What types of questions would you be getting them to ask themselves, to ask internally, to help them uncover exactly who they want to target and maybe move away from some of those just lumping people into demographic buckets? The way I normally approach this is I start with the brand and I start with what that brand is all about, what they want the brand to stand for. And then I then I look at what's the sort of commercial challenge that business is facing at the moment. And once I've got a proper handle on that, then I'll get into the, the Nielsen data or the Roy Morgan data or that kind of thing and then start to look at, start chunking it down. And I do have to go through that exercise first off where you do take those really blunt steps of looking at age demographics and incomes and you know locations and all that kind of stuff. But once I've got to that point, that's when I would try and get a little bit a little bit more granular, I guess. And so often I'll I'll pick up the phone to rights holders that that I know and have some conversations with them around how well their properties to particular audience. And, you know, obviously they they have a vested interest in their in pushing their sport. But at the same time, you know, I I've got relationships that are good enough that we can have a fairly honest conversation about which part of their particular their particular sport might lend itself to an audience that we're trying to reach. But really, I'm, I'm I'm usually guided first and foremost by what the what the brand's looking to achieve and what they're looking to stand for, because I think that can go a really long way in solving a problem. And I think what we find is that I mean, we, we all know Australians love sport. I mean, most people watch any game on telly, regardless of their interest level. So I, I usually, as a starting point, try and look at what would be a really good reflection of the brand, what equity, equity, sorry, can we borrow from that particular sport? What does that say about how we're putting our money? Do it? Are we making a statement with our, with our spend? You know, I think an example that's sort of front of mind is obviously the recent announcement of the, the 2023 Women's World Cup here that's going to be on home soil. And I'm really interested to see which brands get involved with, with um, women's football in this country just because I think the the capacity of that to say a huge amount about what your brand stands for is massive. I think it's a real stake in the ground. I think we've all seen the enormous strides that women's sport in this country has made. And I think globally we're top of the pile in terms of how women's sport has been commercialised, how it's been talked about in the media, the airtime it's given, the professionalism of it. I think it's fantastic. It's a massive badge of honour for our country. I'm really excited to see which brands jump in on women's football and, you know, yes, we're capitalising on an opportunity, but I think it's an incredible thing to get behind. And that's going to be a moment of huge cultural significance here in the next, well, it's going to be one of the high watermarks of sport events in this in this country for probably the next 10 years. So I think that's a really interesting thing to look at. And that's actually often one of the, one of the first things I'll think about when I start looking at a strategy for one of our clients or for a prospective brand, what are those what are those partnerships we can align ourselves to that really say something about what we want to try and stand for? On the flip side, is it the same for rights holders that approach or is it a little bit different how they need to go about researching different data sets or, or the questions that they need to ask themselves internally when they're trying to maybe reset their sponsorship approach and what they're taking to the market? I think it's changed for sure. I think they're getting a lot more brand savvy. I think we can expect to see a lot more brand marketers and, and agency people moving into rights holders to try and, you know, upskill them, I guess, on the kind of thing that brands are looking for. Because I think 
the brands I'm seeing these days are looking to enter into partnerships based on how it aligns with their brand strategy more so than how it helps them reach an audience. Because I think for a long time now, this question of, you know, the media evaluation of a particular sponsorship and how well it's reaching a particular audience is getting pretty stale. And I think most people are, are moving away from that. And, and more often than not now, we're finding the clients want to measure their sponsorships through the effect that it's having on their brand, whether that be, you know, just awareness of the partnership, but at a more deeper level, what does that do for their, their health metrics, you know, their reputation scores, consideration, usually not quite as far as acquisition, but certainly further up the marketing funnel, is it doing a good job of driving acquisition and reputation scores? That's traditionally how we're seeing brands measuring success. So it follows that, you know, obviously rights holders are having to set themselves up to service that as well. So I, I'm seeing a lot of rights holders who are getting increasingly savvy on that. You know, they're, they're coming with proposals that are really considered with how, you know, the, how they can co-create a strategy with a particular brand that will be, you know, beneficial to that brand and, and they're cognizant of the things that they're trying to get out of it at a brand level rather than just trying to sell a media valuation, which I think we all know is a bit of a false economy. You mentioned seeing some good examples of rights holders positioning those markets and, and potentially those hyper passions that they can help brands connect with. Do you have any tips for rights holders around the level of insight or data they should be getting on their fan base and those audiences to get ahead of it all? Because it can be a never-ending quest. Or When is enough data enough data? How do you know? You're right. Like There, there does come a point where it's information overload. And you do have to pair that just with your own intuition and your own um, experiences and, and smarts. Look, I think it's it's gotten a lot better. And I think rights holders are definitely coming to the table now with more interesting and more human data than perhaps we would have seen five or 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of brands sit up and take notice when we start talking about regional communities, particular migrant groups, new migrants, you know, cultural subsects. A lot of the bigger brands that we work with are starting to take a real interest in how how they can reach those communities and show that they they care about them. And so having that level of detail is is usually quite helpful. Um, and I think the other thing is we we're getting into a really good flow when we work with the rights holder for a number of weeks before approaching one of our clients or or a prospect with an offer, because then we can actually spend the time with them imparting all the knowledge that we already have around you know, what that brand might be looking to get out of a partnership, um, where they're going, what their objectives are, yes, what their audience is, but also what do they need to do for their brand and their business. And when we compare, um, you know, the knowledge that we have with their knowledge of their, their sport or their, you know, their part of culture, then you can co-create something which is going to be quite a compelling proposition to a client, I think. That's proving to be really useful approach for us, I think, just just really working hand in glove with the rights holder. Let's pivot slightly to the dark art of linking brand objectives to sponsorship deals. And I wanted to come back to that point you made before about you seeing sponsors and brands starting to focus more on the impact of that brand at various levels of the marketing funnel. What, what kind of objectives which their sponsorships will be aligned to help achieve? Do you think a brand needs to have that makes them suited into delving into hyper passions? 
it's a good question, and, and it's one I could probably spend another hour talking about if we had had the time. Um, I've got fairly strong opinions on it <laughs> because I I hear a lot of people complaining about the kind of lack of ta- lack of accountability and lack of measurability in sponsorship, and I I don't really buy it. I think it comes down to the the amount of effort and sometimes the investment that's put into measuring it. And if it's if it's done right up front, then I think you can you can prove that sponsorship has a really tangible effect on the on the business of that brand. If I was going to call out one brand in particular, I, I've always been super impressed by the way that Combank approach it. You know, we've worked with them for a long time now and worked a lot with them on cricket. Myself personally, over a number of years, I've worked with them on a number of campaigns now. And I feel like they've got it down to a really fine art. You know, we we set our objectives at the top of the show. We know exactly what we're hoping to achieve um, when we run another summer cricket campaign. It's usually usually about driving reputation and consideration scores for the bank. And through experience, and look, they're lucky because they've got, you know, nine on 40 years experience in cricket. So they've got a, a huge amount of experience and, and data to kind of go back on. But... We've got it down to a really fine art now where we know a campaign with a certain amount of media spend behind it can be expected to have, you know, a, a shift of those particular metrics down to a, you know, a single percentage point. We can get that kind of that kind of precise with it. And then it's just a case of putting the the measurement tools in place. And, you know, that usually involves campaign tracking, which all big brands do. Pair that with your kind of always-on brand tracking tools that again all big brands are going to have those in market always on if you get it right and you get your tools and your processes set up up front you can reach the end of the campaign and go cool we've got empirical data that shows we the work that we've done has had a whatever it is seven percent fifteen percent um uplift in whatever score we're trying to track and you, you can get really precise with it so i think that's um I don't think it's as hard as it's made out to be. I think it's. I think the industry has probably suffered from massive media valuation numbers being thrown around left, right, and centre, and impression scores in the hundreds of millions. And you know, you you see these kind of numbers getting quoted, and people's eyes glaze over because it's just another big number. And the more you see them, the less hard it is. Sorry, the more hard it is to distinguish between them. And I think it just. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone really buys that anymore. I think um, both rights holders and brands have, have now realised that actually it's about reputation scores and brand scores. That's where sponsorships at its strongest. Well, going back one step or, or, or back one level, we just spoke about sponsorship objectives, which all sponsorships should have, or good sponsorships anyway, but not all sponsorships are of the same type, the same structure or, or strategy or approach. Do you think there's specific types of sponsorship deals or setups that hyper passions are really good for or, or really well aligned to, or is it just a case of all sponsorships can and maybe should be utilising hyper passions? Look, I think if anything, that this idea of hyper passions actually makes them inherently easier to track because the way that we're defining it is that it's played out on social. You know, if I go back to how I was defining it when we first started talking, you know, it's about a hyper passion is, you know, something that's a bit more niche. It's something that's something that you're more hardcore fan of a particular sport or part of culture is into. But then the other half of the equation is, yeah, it's a niche 
passion, but it's the way you use it to project your sense of identity. And the way that we do that in this day and age is, you know, largely through social, whether that be Instagram or TikTok or whatever. So just inherently within this whole concept of hyper passions, you've you've got a structure there which makes it easy to track because we have such great insights coming out of social media. So I, I think it's I think it's a, a a good opportunity for brands, and I think if if they're struggling to to hold rights holders to account in a more traditional sense, then having a look at your kind of more niche communities and how they're behaving online, how they're talking about your brand, whether they're clicking through to purchase or visit your site or whatever, I think that means that you've at least got one part of your strategy there which can be very very accountable. So they're they're a very useful thing to look at. Luke, great chat and hyper passions. It's a super interesting topic and strikes me as one that's only going to become more important as brands and rights holders look to try and take their sponsorships to the next level. Luke, if people want to connect with you, maybe keep the conversation going or learn more about M&C Saatchi's work, what can they do? Look, I think hit me up on, on LinkedIn. That's the, that's the easiest way and um, we can go from there. Luke Haynes, Group Account Director from M&C Saatchi Sport and Entertainment. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside Hyper Passions and how they can be applied to sponsorship. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. A super interesting chat, and I'm fascinated to see how brands activate in this area and weave themselves, hopefully as seamlessly as possible, into Hyper Passions. Or maybe they'll even begin to create those places for people to come together and share and activate their Hyper Passions and actually drive them themselves. Be sure to check out the MNC Saatchi Fabric website, and I've placed a link in the show notes at coresoftware.com, as well as a link to Luke's LinkedIn profile. Listeners, that's a wrap for 2020, and I trust that we did the best job possible in taking you inside various sponsorship activities around the world. That's always been the goal with this show, to take you past the generic content that we get at conferences and on websites and hear more candidly from those in our industry. To kick off 2021, I'm producing a show that takes what we, the team at Core, think was the best answer from each of our guests in 2020 and stitching it together into a best of 2020 show. I'm very excited for 2021 because it means that we will get to release our 100th episode. Not sure what we will plan around that, but it's a huge milestone. I must thank all of the amazing guests that have helped us make it happen because without them, the show would not be what it is. Of course, if you have a guest you'd love to hear from or an area of particular interest or you want us to dive into a particular sponsorship, please just let us know and I'll see if I can make that happen for you. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial director, APAC, Daniel Collier-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, I hope you and your family have a safe, enjoyable and relaxing end to the year. I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.